Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. It's Lainey from the Library Love Fest team. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Library Love Fest podcast. Today, we have a special episode for you. We have another librarian guest host. Today, we have Becky Spratford from RA for All, and she's interviewing Paul Tremblay about his new book, The Paul Bearers Club. Very exciting. Listen in and hear a really fascinating conversation. And Paul gives some recommendations, so be sure to check out our show notes to write down all of the books that he recommends. Thank you so much, Lainey, for having me today. My name is Becky Spratford, and I am a reader's advisor specializing in serving patrons ages 13 and up. You might have seen my blog, RA for All, but I'm also known for my horror views for both Booklist and Library Journal. And I'm very happy today to be able to interview Paul Tremblay about his latest novel, for which I gave a star in Booklist. It'll be appearing in the May issue. You are welcome. <laughs> Let me introduce Paul. He has won the Bram Stoker, the British Fantasy and Massachusetts Book Awards and is the author of Survivor Song, Growing Things and Other Stories, The Cabin at the End of the World, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, A Head Full of Ghosts, and the crime novels, The Little Sleep and No Sleep to Wonderland. And his latest novel, The Paul Bearers Club, is coming out on July 5th. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Becky, and thank you, Lainey. And, and thank you, you know, again for the review. That review made my spring for, for Booklist, so super excited. Oh, that's great. Well, I was happy to get to read it and review it, and it is wonderful. And speaking of the Paul Bears Club, speaking why don't of, you share with the audience what it's about? Okay, I'll see if I can do this without being too rambly. I'm terrible at, like, the, the pitch or the, you know, the short description. That's why I write novels. Uh, so the Paul Bears Club is presented as a found memoir. Uh, a character who calls himself Art Barbara. That's not his real name. Uh, I just enjoy saying that name in a Boston accent, Art Barbara. Um, <laughs> so anyway, it, it opens with Art while he's a high school senior in 1988, 1989. Um, he is sort of like a self-identifying loser, doesn't have friends, is painfully thin, has scoliosis and bad skin. It's a very shy, introverted, awkward kid. Um, and in desperation, uh, He's going to apply for college and in a desperation to get into a college, he realizes, oh, I don't have any extracurricular activities. So he starts what's called the Paul Bearers Club, where he volunteers at a local funeral home to serve elderly and homeless who don't have any living relatives that would show up to services, you know, which is a really sweet thing to do, but also still kind of weird because dead people, right? <laughs> um, so, of course, he doesn't get very many students to join with his club, but eventually a strange older woman, he's not sure how much older, maybe she's in college, uh, joins the club. And I'll just call her M for now. <laughs> um, so M is a punk rock fan, and she likes to take Polaroid pictures of dead people. Um, and M becomes a friend of Art's. You know, she turns him into a punk rock fan. Uh, and really, through the rest of the book, 
you know, the friendship between art and uh, final call and mercy between art and mercy, <laughs> you know, really spans over three decades. Um, and hopefully, you know, the, 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 I guess the horror part is mercy may or may not be uh, an element from, from uh, New England folklore, maybe a supernatural sort of being or creature. And so that gets played within the book. Um, what am I forgetting? I oh, also, oh, I guess yeah. the last thing I would say is Mercy, Mercy gets actually comments on Art's memoir, which is fun. Like at the end, not only at the end of every chapter, but she'll write stuff in the margins too. See, that and was that, a long rambly answer. No, that's great because there is so much here and all the different things you hit on, we're going to delve into. Okay, cool. Um, let's start with the last thing you just said, the structure of this novel. You know, the narrative style is a fake memoir, very clear from the start that it's fiction, that it's, <laughs> uh, but it's a memoir of a fictional person who isn't even telling us his real name. And also it's a found document clearly that right. that character Mercy has found at some point and is not only leaving comments in the margins, footnotes fact-checked it, checking <laughs> a fake memoir, which was so fun and unsettling to read, mm. but also she sort of provides commentary at the end of each chapter too that sums everything up. It's like the book is a conversation. What led you to writing a fake memoir that's a conversation between two characters who are friends but don't really <laughs> exist? Uh, you know, it's funny. Honestly, like, so the idea for the book came from uh, the, an actual Paul Bearers Club. There's actually a student at my school who tried to start one. And, uh, and, I, and I was like, whoa, I got to do something with this. And it, it instantly put me in mind of, oh, what, would I, what was I like in high school? So I started thinking already that the Art Barber character was going to be very much like me. Uh, I didn't realize how much like me he was going to become. Um, you know, and then once I hit upon what's sort of the horror or speculative elements of the book, you know, with Mercy's character, I, I became really excited at the opportunity to, to work with this narrative structure where we have two characters, sort of like a two-person Rashomon, you know, two people talking about similar, if not the same events, but with differing point of views. But, you know, Mercy definitely, there's a lot of winking, I think, with her, you know, with her point of view. Um, you know, it, I guess it was part of it is to play with the ambiguity. I guess I will say it's not a spoiler. I feel like I do answer the question or, or one of them answers the question by the time the book ends as to whether something supernatural is happening or not. Um, yeah. We'll bring so, that up later. Sure. We'll bring okay. that up later. Yeah. And I was just thankful that my publisher went along with printing it as marginalia because I thought it was important to have it present that way as opposed to like footnotes or something. Um, you know, I want to think here's a character who's reading her friend's you know, memoir that she found and you don't find out till later how she found it, um, you know, in writing notes in the margins. I think to me, it felt like it was an important facet of the story to, to be able to read it that way. I also liked it too, because as a way to tell the story, I mean, clearly there's lots of unreliability here from everyone. Yeah. It's memoir in and of itself, whether it's a real memoir or a fictional memoir, has an unreliability of the narrator anyway. But Absolutely. as the story went on, in many ways, art got more unreliable and Mercy felt more reliable, which was fun <laughs> as a reader as well. Um, you were talking about how you weren't sure how much Art Barbara would end up like you. And by the way, I am I love hearing that the Paul Bears Club was based on a kid's true story because the mm. idea was just, it was so heartwarming and yet creepy at the same time. Right. Um, but... <laughs> You talked about how he ended up being more like you than you thought. And as I was reading this, I felt almost like this was a version of how you could have become yeah. if only different choices were made. Um, 
how was that for you as an author? Because that adds another layer of sort of unsettling um, aspects to it. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of fun, but weird. And it made it uh, more difficult for me to be more objective about the story itself, because every time I put something or, or took a piece of autobiography and twisted it, like, oh, that's clever in my head. But then I was like, oh, wait a minute, is, is this going to be clever for anybody else, <laughs> you know, who doesn't know my life? So that was really like a hard thing to try to get some distance from. Um, and so I will say, like, when I started this book, I was excited to have the idea of it because it was going to be a departure from my previous two novels, The Cabin at the End of the World and Survivor Song. Both novels were very much fully and purposefully engaged with sort of the, the political now. Um, and it was frankly kind of exhausting to be writing about <laughs> life in Trump land, you know, for two full novels. So when I had the idea for this book, I was like, oh, I'm going to get to go back to the 80s. And, you know, around the same time, I think I felt like I had made the self-discovery of why I write. And I think why I write is because of the experiences of the younger me. So in some ways, this book, you know, it, hopefully it's still entertaining and fun for all the readers. But for me, part of it became like, this book is really about my relationship with writing and my want to create and how that's weirdly tied up at times with anxiety and depression and, and doubt and stuff like that. And that's definitely all dealt with in here. But again, as you've made a comment about, and me too, it is still fun to read. It is extremely compelling and immersive. And the way that Mercy finishes chapters, and then there's these great openings to each chapter. It just wants you to keep reading. So for example, this is something you learn very quickly. Every single chapter is not only titled after a song, by a band, we'll talk about that in a second, but also sure. there's these very fun summaries that Art puts at the beginning of each chapter that make you wanna just keep reading. <laughs> oh, good. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, like I, I envision this book as, I probably wouldn't describe it as a horror comedy because I, I kind of feel like when people think horror comedy, they think, I, don't know, th I think they think instantly of movies and movies where the horror elements are the funny part. Like, no, I wanted this book to be funny when it's supposed to be, and hopefully creepy when it's supposed to be. Um, so that was my goal. I, I, you know, in some ways I almost felt like this book, you know, for anyone's read my prior books, maybe a little bit of The Little Sleep meets A Head Full of Ghosts in terms of tone, <laughs> a little bit of humor, and, you know, hopefully a little bit of, you know, scariness too. I definitely think that it is, you were mentioning this too, the last two books being like mired in politics. I felt like this harkened back to A Head Full of Ghosts where you're playing with, the genre as much as you're playing with the way the story is told. Did you sort of start to think back to A Head Full of Ghosts when you were writing this? Um, I don't know. I mean, that book's sort of always there. I mean, if anything, I was a little bit worried. It's like, oh, I don't want it to seem too much like A Head Full of Ghosts, but that really hasn't been the response yet. Only because like, you know, in A Head Full of Ghosts, there is the blogger commenting on the larger story, right? But, you know, Mercy is her own character you know, much different than art. So, it's, you know, that's a big sort of difference between the two. Um, but yeah, I, I, actually the other similarity, I mean, I, I definitely mined some family stuff with a head full of ghosts. And I feel like I emptied the bucket in this book to the point where I'm a little bit worried. It's like, oh man, I usually lean on autobiographical stuff when I write. I feel like I've used everything else in this book. I don't know what I'm going to write about now. <laughs> so the next book will be a brand new adventure as well. Uh, yeah, it's going to have to be. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk to the librarians out there because this is, does go out to the library audience. Um, one of the things that was remarkable to be about this book from a pacing standpoint is normally with horror, we start off with 
longer chapters that set up the detail and get us mired in it all. And then it gets quicker and quicker as we go. And while the story itself here does do that, the pacing increases as we get toward the, the conclusion, um, the chapters I noticed actually get longer as the mm. book goes on, which I found very cool because it kept the pacing stayed up, but the chapters were longer. So how'd you do that? And how'd you convince <laughs> your editor to let you do that? Uh, <laughs> um, it's fine. It's a good question. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of it was just going with, you know, my subconscious. Like I, I definitely noticed in the beginning, the chapters were shorter. And even at one point when the chapters started getting longer, Mercy actually comments in one of her end of chapter things like, hey, this chapter is a little long. Maybe you should, you know, break it up or something. You know, maybe that's something like old other editors of mine might have said to me. Um, yeah, and it, you know, by the time I got through with it, I did notice and I did sort of purposely leave that, you know, even though the, the first, probably the biggest chunk timeline in the book takes place in 88 and 89, but those longer chapters occur over a smaller time period. So I kind of liked how uh, <laughs> that weird sort of anti-time compression happened in both directions too. Um, no, my editor was great. You know, she's very hands-off, but at the same time, she tells me what I need to hear. So I, I will say when I handed in my draft to my editor, uh, after talking with her, I ended up cutting like 30 pages or 10,000 words, you know, for some of it was pacing and some of it was just me realizing, okay, I don't need that bit. You know, it slows things down a little bit too much. And, and all that stuff that I cut out was one was an unnecessary scene that I think confused sort of the, the supernatural rules of the story. But a lot of it was other sort of like interior memoir stuff that didn't have to stay. So you save some of it for next time then. Yeah, that's true. You did right? save yeah, some. I did. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about, and you you mentioned this, about sort of the stories you write in general. So in my book, The Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror, the third edition, I use you as the example author for what today's psychological horror is. And in it, I talk about a couple things about what psychological horror is about today as you write it. One, um, these are stories that just emotionally break the reader <laughs> and are utterly terrifying, but you're so glad you read them when you're done. Like you feel, um, I call it heartbreakingly beautiful and utterly terrifying at the same Thank time. You. Right. But the other thing is, and you do this very well, the books are, you're not sure where to stand on the supernatural aspects of the story. I mean, maybe Survivor Strong's a little more literal yeah. because- the supernatural right. aspect is this, well, what we thought was a right. pandemic type right. situation that wouldn't be real. But especially in the other novels that we listed that you've written, and this one in particular, where a reader stands, maybe you know where you stand, but where a yeah. reader stands when it ends is, it could have been all supernatural or it could have sure. been all real. I remember, and readers, listeners out there will know Rebecca Vanuk, who runs Library Reads, um, her and I, ended up having a very long conversation as we both finished Cabin at the End of the World. <laughs> and she's like, totally realistic. It's definitely, you know, oh, cool. these evil people yeah. coming in to, to, to take over the house and whatever. And I'm like, no, totally supernatural. The world is going <laughs> to end, right? They had to do this. So uh -huh. what do you like about that? And, you know, why do you keep doing that in your stories? Because I love it as a reader. Oh, but. thank you. Um, you know, it, it's just, I, I guess ambiguity is one of my writerly obsessions, you know, whether it applies to like the individual, to, to memory, to identity, to, to reality itself, um, especially in the long form. I don't know, because I think my, my inner sort of skeptic is always there <laughs> um, to be like in a long book. It's hard for me to, like part of it, it's just hard for me to commit that something 
actually supernatural is having is happening. Um, but so I, I typically try to play it like as realistic as possible, or what I think would be realistic. Like I think if I were to experience something supernatural, I think it would be really subtle. I would have a hard time discerning if it was supernatural, and I would probably instantly just try to debunk it. Um, I mean, so there's that side of it, but I don't know, just living the 21st century is this weird, ambiguous <laughs> existence. I mean, between made even more so between so many interactions are now like this, like Zoom, <laughs> um, you know, and just the flood of misinformation, which obviously became important parts of some earlier novels, you know, Cabin included. So I don't know, I, I know, you know, once I realize that that's been an obsession of mine, I think the best writer's advice you can give is, you know, don't run away from them, lean into them. You know, with that said, I know I can't do it every time in every book, which is part of the reason why I wrote Survivor Song. But if I am going to do it, I feel like I have to do it in a different way each time. So, yeah, I definitely think you've done that. And I know you said you feel like, you know, you answer the question about mercy at the end of the book. But I'm going to hold firm yeah. that I feel like it is still open to interpretation. Because, I agree. <laughs> yeah, because mercy is very clear in her. And, and I have to say that final commentary is those last lines are some of the most beautiful and heartfelt oh, things you. I've read, but I don't know who I believe at all. Right. <laughs> well, I'll say part of me is like, yeah, I'm going to say answer the question, but I don't tell you which way. Partly because, you know, I, I get, <laughs> I get, especially with Kevin, I get inundated with, why well, you didn't tell us the end. It's like. The end wasn't the point. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yes. I, I'm a little scarred by that experience. So. Well, but the book yeah. did great. So I mean, <laughs> it won the yeah. Bram Stoker sure. Award and it's fine. <laughs> but I will say that for library workers out there, that is one easy way for us to get your books in the hands of lots of different readers. Mm. Often we see publishers marketing books that are horror as literary thriller or horror thriller. But in the case of your books, we can give them to psychological suspense fans uh -huh. and to horror fans. And I think that's why you're seeing such a wide range of readers. You might be just satisfying yourself, but you're satisfying right. more readers. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, well, that's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, every writer is different. Like, I feel like I can't really, I mean, it's impossible not to think about the market in some sense, um, but I really try to divorce myself from thinking in terms of it because I feel like that's too much pressure. It's hard enough to take this idea that I'm excited about. It's hard enough to make it what I hope is the best it can be without thinking of the pressures of, oh, is it going to be, you know, right for this group of people or, you know, et cetera. Yeah, it needs to be right for you. Speaking of what's right for you, <laughs> there segment. are people out there who don't like you because you have this <laughs> hatred of pickles oh, yeah. that goes so deep. And you even made a joke about it in the book. It's like, you can't let it go, Paul. Why? I what can't. did pickles no, do I to usually slip that in No, I usually slip that into other books too. Yeah. I, just, I, I mean, I was a super picky eater. You get a taste of it with Art's character too, where his mom sort of bemoans how picky an eater he is. But yeah, no, when I was in high school, like I even went through like a phase where I said I didn't like bread. So, but uh, the pickle is like, I eat so many more things now. My mother is amazed and happy, but the uh, pickle is still the holdover. And she said, no, I hate him, I hate him. Can't deal with him. I also had a high babysitter and this is not pickle zero, but when I was like seven or eight, a high babysitter, I assume she was high because she was giggling. When I was asleep, she stuck a pickle in my ear. It was laughing. So, but I didn't like pickles before. Drama. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of your mom, have, has she read the book yet? Because the mom she, character in this book is, I really liked her. Yeah, uh, she has. You know, I feel like I had to. So my sister read it first and she was really worried. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I, I talked to my mom 
not that she's portrayed badly, but you know, I told her what was uh, going to happen eventually. But no, my mom's like one of my biggest fans. She's amazing. Um, she loves going to, uh, she still lives in the town I grew up in in Beverly and she goes to Carper Dog, which is an amazing bookstore. During the pandemic, they actually delivered books to my mom's house because she has COPD. So we didn't want her going out. So amazing. Thank you, Carper Dog Books. But like when she goes in there sometimes, she's like, hey, it's Paul Tremley's mom. And she gets a kick out of that. So <laughs> that's adorable. Um, speaking of bookstores and books in general, before we wrap up, I would love to give you a chance to talk about some of the authors and books coming out that you're excited about so that the library workers listening can also place holds on those too and orders. Sure. Um, yeah. So, okay, I'll, I'll go through this. I wrote stuff down this list really quickly. Um, I would call this sort of horror adjacent, but Stuart Onan's Ocean State is an amazing book. It just came out, you know, and Stuart is a mentor, hero of mine. I, you know, I've learned so much from Stuart and his support. You know, his book is really sort of like a New England sort of crime story mixed with Shirley Jackson, I would call it. Um, but it's just a wonderful book. Uh, John Langan's Corpse Mouth, uh, a collection of short fiction. And John's short fiction tends to be longer. So it's almost like a collection of novellas uh, is amazing. Um, some recent favorites, Mariana Enriquez, uh, her two short story collections, one called uh, Things We Lost in the Fire. Uh, those were her first books published into English. She's Argentinian, but she has a giant like 800 page novel coming out in the fall. I don't have the title in front of me, but you know, definitely keep a lookout for that. Um, a, uh, a shorter book, a novella put out by Undertow Press by Nabin Ruthnan. I think I'm I it gave it right. a star review in Library oh, Journal. Okay. It is one help. of the best things I've read. Help yeah. Me. Help, help me. It is such a strange, weird, like sort of what you were saying before is beautifully written. It's like beautifully grotesque body horror and emotional. And yeah, and like less than hundred pages. It's amazing. Um, another actually undertow book I would mention came out last year, but AC wise is the ghost, uh, the ghost sequences is an amazing ghost story collection. Um, let's see, you know, not, um, the, the book that I just finished reading, I guess, Guess I'll end with that. That's coming out uh, in the fall, I believe. Is Rachel Harrison's uh, "Such Sharp Teeth." It's a it's a werewolf novel, and it's its tone is to me is the marvel. I mean, the whole book is great, but the tone is so hard to peg, and it's so, it's so slippery from humorous to disturbing to scary. It's just such a smart, interesting, fun book. Every time you think, oh, you know, werewolf tropes been done, you know, there's always like a super talented author to come by and and show you how to do it again. So that was really exciting to read. That's great. Thank you, Paul. And I just want to thank you for being here. Is there anything else you want to tell people about your book that's coming out, The Paul Bears Club? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Uh, if you get the first printing, and I don't know for librarians how that would work, but the first printing, Morrow is actually going to print in two color ink. So Mercy's comments and, you know, and her chapters will be in red ink, you know, where, where the bulk of the book will be in black, which would be fun. Uh, but yeah, like like I said earlier, I hope it's a it's both fun and creepy ride. <laughs> I think I'm going to say I think that's guaranteed. I've read it, but that's a really great point about the first edition. Libraries tend to pre-order the book, so get your orders in now so you can have the nice two-color edition. Yeah. Also, consider voting for the Paul Bears Club on Library Reads. It is going on sale July 5th. Thank you so much, Paul and Lainey, for letting us take over your podcast without supervision. <laughs> Thank you both. Jeez, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. 
Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week. Thank you.